to episode 28 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey there, Steve. As regular listeners will know, the aim of our podcast is to unearth demo recordings and speak with artists involved in their creation. The people we speak with come from across the spectrum of experience and success. And on occasion, we've been lucky enough to have an opportunity to speak to someone whose music both Ben and I are fans of. This is one such occasion as we welcome Mogwai's Stuart Braithwaite onto the show. Ben, this was a real treat, eh? It was. It was such a treat, man. I think we both indulged in some heavy Mogwai listening, sort of as preparation for the conversation. Um, and I, I watched the, the Lost in France film as well, which we touch on in the, in the course of the conversation. So I think we were both anticipating um, a really exciting and engaging conversation. That's very much what we got, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. It was great to talk to Stuart. And um, I, I feel really lucky that um, Stuart shared the home demo with us, um, which is for a song from their forthcoming 10th studio album, As the Love Continues. The demo on the show is actually the first incarnation of the band's new single, Richie Sacramento. And I loved hearing Stuart detail the evolution of the song with us. Yeah, and how exciting to um, to press play and hear that demo for the first time and hear, you know, the sort of the very first kind of workings. And it was, it, like you said, it was really fascinating to hear him talk about the kind of how the songs start from his point of view, because we also hear about how um, how the band is full of multi-talented musicians and writers, you know, that brought a sort of wealth of difference to the to the writing stuff. But obviously, this was an insight into Stuart's particular. Uh, journey into making music yeah and and the involvement of uh david friedman as well in in the sort of evolution of all the songs but you know there's some there's some really nice insight into his role as well isn't there yeah and also about how that you know how the sort of changing nature of the the current pandemic that we're all experiencing at the moment how that actually in this instance had a a positive impact in terms of bringing david even more into the fold and you know clearly he's a He's a producer that is so key to lots of the bands that we've um, we've been interested in, in in their music for for a long time. So it was great to hear about that and um, the sort of burgeoning relationship between Mogwai and and, and Dave Friedman. Yeah, it'd be nice to talk to him, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah, come on, <laughs> <then. laughs> see, hear it from the other side, <laughs> Dave. If you're listening, we would love to talk to you. Well, uh, Mogwai are 25 years into their musical adventure. They're a much-loved and admired band who you've, who they've uniquely crafted their place in the world. Speaking with Stuart just cemented those ideas further for me. And so what have you taken from having a conversation with Stuart? Well, there was, there was lots of stuff about them, um, the sort of formative role models that they had coming together as a, mm. as a band and also that incredible sense of community um, with the music scene that they grew up around. Um, and also, you know, so that was, I thought both of those things would come into the conversation quite heavily. Also, I was really taken by um, Stuart's kind of just shedding light on the fact that when you are young and starting out, that you don't have, you know, you don't have the blinkers on, you don't kind of self-edit. And that something, something very vital about the energy and the opportunity that that affords you starting out making music you know kind of and i thought his perspective on that was really really interesting yeah 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 there's a there's a lot to enjoy in that uh, for sure uh, well our sincere thanks to stuart for coming on to the show and for soldiering through some technical issues which dogged us at the start of the interview as you'll hear oh, despite so our best effort <laughs> pardon 
Oh, yes, they did. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Despite our best efforts, we did lose a few minutes of the interview and we've inserted a little note into the um, podcast by way of explanation. Okay, enough of our yakking. Here is our interview with Stuart Braithwaite on episode 28 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Stuart Braithwaite. I'm the guitar player and sometimes singer in Mogwai. And uh, the demo you're going to hear is the demo version of a song that's going to be on a record that's coming out um, in February. Um, the song is called Richie Sacramento, but the demo I sent you guys has its working title, which is Pop Delay. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Stuart. Can we just start by asking you what you remember about the first time you went into a recording studio? Uh, wh when was that and what did you record? When I was at high school, we had a really um, a really great music teacher called Mr. Mackay, and he, uh, he had a setup. Um, when he would record all the the kids in the in their own little bands, um, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if I would call it a recording studio. I can't actually remember what it was. It was definitely more advanced than a four track, but it wasn't all bells and whistles. But I think because when you're when you're young, when you're a kid or a teenager, you don't really take a step back and really think about anything that's ever happening to you. You just kind of you're just in the moment. So I just remember thinking it was cool hearing hearing what I was playing a guitar back through headphones and um I guess or my teacher, Mr. Mackay, he probably put like some reverb on some stuff and all that. So yeah, I just remember thinking it was it, it it was something I enjoyed. It was it was an extension of sitting in my bedroom playing guitar or whatever and yeah, just kind of was just kind of rolling with it, I suppose. So at this point in the interview, the Wi-Fi dropped and we were not able to access the recording, even through our usual backup system. We rejoined the conversation a few minutes later with Stuart sharing a bit about how the band prepare for recording new music. Yeah, Mar Martin, Martin goes away with the demos and works really, really, really hard just playing over and over and over, coming up with loads and loads of ideas. He likes to be really prepared before we go into the studio. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. And I think it was... I think. I, I, we also did two lots of demos. We did our home demos and then we did rough demos in our studio in Glasgow before we went to the studio in, in Worcestershire where we finished the record. Well, we really made the record. So we, we kind of got two lots at, at kind of perfecting the songs before we ended up doing the doing the finished thing. When did you when did you set your studio up and how did that change the way that you approached making music? Um, our, our studio's been in a few different buildings, but the very first time we did it, I think, was in 2007. So we made the, the Mr. Beast album there and we made the Zidane soundtrack and the Fountain, or a part of the Fountain soundtrack in it. So it's it's been really great, actually. Um, we've still recorded away from it a few times. The, the live room's big but it's not so big that we can all just set up in it and play which is what we like to do when we when we track a record um we're actually getting some doing some renovations to make it bigger so hopefully we'll be able to do everything there all all the time in the future but um yeah it's it, it's definitely been a good thing like it's 
it's just good to have somewhere that if you know if you've got something to do you can just go and do it you know it's kind of being at other people's whims i mean uh, can be a problem and even though other people use our studio it's essentially a commercial studio if we needed to do something we could go in before the other people start or when they finish or whatever so yeah it's definitely a really a really great great thing to have so for the new record you um worked with david fridman Uh, can you say a little bit about how that came about and at what point in the creative process did he get involved you know it's actually kind of interesting you're talking about demos because i think because we knew we weren't going to be able to go to america because of the pandemic obviously um Dave was more involved than he usually is before we recorded. And there was actually two songs on the record, um, which I'm trying to remember the names of because we've we've given them the names at the last second. They're called Here We, Here We, Here We Go Forever and um, It's What I Want To Do, Mum. And Dave actually rescued them from the demo bin. He was like, what about those two? What about those two songs? And we we'd kind of forgotten about them and moved on to other stuff. And he he'd been listening just to a playlist of all our demos. I mean, we we probably made about forty demos for the album, and uh, wow. because Dave liked because Dave liked those two songs, um, I went back and just made them a bit more substantial. Like a lot of my demos, in fact, you'll probably hear it. You'll hear it on the one we play, but. They rarely have more than two parts to them. The one you, the demo you're going to hear is is basically a guitar loop, and then some chords over the top that change once. And when you hear the finished song, it's I mean it's it's not like King Crimson or anything, but there's a lot <laughs> more to it. You know, it kind of it, it kind of it, 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 it grew it grew into something a lot bigger, and, and it kind of. Uh, it says a lot about Dave that the two songs I mentioned that he could hear something in them that we couldn't. We were just it was just a little mess about, just a little couple of chords or like a weird riff or something. But he kind of managed to bring that into something much more substantial. So he he was he was really involved before we before we made the record, and when we made the record, he obviously couldn't be there. Uh, so he was on a kind of like we are doing right now, just on a kind of permanent conference call just talking to us and talking us through the takes and making suggestions from listening to stuff that he's been involved in and him talking about that the process he seems to be very very much at the heart of a recording process more than just uh, someone putting stuff down is it it's kind of is he involved in discussions about how songs develop and um i guess i guess you're going to listen to someone like him very eagerly aren't you yeah, yeah, we've got, I mean, when we started working with David, it was because we liked the records that he'd made. But over the years, I mean, this was the fourth album we've made with him. I think we've surrendered more and more control to him because we trust him so much. And um, suggestions he's made for our records have always turned out, or they've always been good, you know, like he's a he's kind of definitely feels like a additional member of the band when we're working together 
That's that's amazing. I, I, I am interested in just going back to the demo that we're going to hear at the end of the episode. Um, and you were saying that um, it, it became a much more substantial thing. Ben and I were talking before uh, you came on the call um, we, and, and kind of discussing the directions that it could, listening to it, thinking you could just go anywhere. There's the, the foundation for something really brilliant is there. And um, how does that work within the band, that that growing into something more expansive? Well, I mean, I can I can tell you on this. I mean, the, the demo's just a drum machine, so there's no drums on it. So Martin, Martin obviously wrote a drum part. It kind of turned into more of a kind of, like, psychedelic rock song. It's actually, there's lyrics on the finished one too. It's kind of quite a sad song. Um, and it has, like, a bunch of vocal harmonies, kind of. I mean, I'm trying to guess how we would compare them to maybe, like, like the birds or something in the chorus. There's a lot of harmonies, harmonies in the chorus. The 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 one thing that doesn't change is the guitar riff because that that's actually how the song started. It's just playing the, that four note. Um, it's not even a riff, really. It's just a four note sequence, and then I, I played the chords over the over the top, and then the and the 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 chorus is just the the first two chords reversed so it's hard it's hardly different at all even though it, it yeah this is a hard thing to explain but it, it sounds like a bigger change than it actually is probably because it's so subtle and um so the song kind of turned into like a bit of a sort of melancholic pop song but it was because the only difference in it musically was the first two chords being reversed i wrote another section that isn't in the demo that's uh after the second chorus, is that, I'm trying to work, I'm trying to remember my music terminology. Whether that's a bridge or a middle eight, I think it's a middle eight. So yeah, it's, it's got it's got it's got it's got a middle eight in it. Yeah, because we don't do conventional song structures that much. But yeah, that's that's the only real difference. Like the 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 main chords are the exact same. Barry wrote a really nice keyboard melody that goes through it as well. But the song's not got um, a million parts parts in it. It's just a much more shaped version, and obviously has has lyrics in it too now. So it's 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 not changed much, but it's changed a lot at the same time. You were talking about um, how you know writing forty demos for an album. Are you always that prolific? And and what happens? How do you catalogue the stuff? And how do you how do you choose to come back to work on stuff? I just, because this is our 10th album, all of my demos were just called LP10 1, LP10 2. And I know I, I got up to like 15. I think Barry had loads. Barry had like 25 songs, loads and loads. And that that was kind of where Dave came in because Dave was saying what ones he really liked. It, the, one of the things that we have to be careful is we write a lot of music for um, soundtracks too. So we have to be kind of wary that the music doesn't just sound like another soundtrack we definitely want it to sound like a rock album like every song kind of on its own not kind of fading into the next one but yeah it's just trial and error really well that that leads us nicely on to the next question because uh, your, your soundtrack work is fan- fantastic i especially love the zidane uh soundtrack and atomic and the work you did on uh Lirevenon, i thought was really important to that tv show and the, f- the feel of that show how did you feel when you were first approached to create music for film? 
I mean, we were really excited. Like, the the first thing was Zidane, and um, it's a hard one getting into doing doing that because it's really just getting your foot in the door. And and Douglas, the director, is a friend of ours. So I think that was that was that was how we ended up getting asked. Andy likes the band, obviously, but um, it definitely is is a a hard thing to get into. And we were just excited. It was just something new. The band the band had been going at that point for quite a while, 12, 13 years or something. So it, it it was just really nice to be able to do something that involved us all playing. That was not just making a record or going on tour. That was a, a, another, another way to kind of use, use our music. And has it changed? Has it changed how you work together in, in when you're working on the soundtrack compared to when you're working on a rock album? Is there anything significantly different to the process? Well, I mean, with soundtracks, you have to turn things around incredibly fast. The, the directors will change their mind. They'll be like, oh, you've, we want this to be completely different and we need it in an hour. And at first, at, fir- at first we were just like, we can't do that. Like we had this kind of slightly kind of tortured artist idea that you have to pour over everything for days and days and then I think we realized well no if we want to do this we just need to do it the way it's done so I, th- I think and and it's always worked out fine so I think it's it's shown us that we can make music a lot faster if we have to um which is definitely a helpful a helpful thing but when you're working in creating music for film and tv and you're collaborating with a much larger team of people um do you get the same sort of creative satisfaction from working in that way? Um, it's just different. It's just different. I mean, when it works and it's really good, like I, re- I remember when I saw Zidane was on BBC Two one night and it's one of the happiest I've been because I was just thinking we've made this thing that's totally mental and it, it's in so many people's living rooms right now that have no idea what the hell's going on and this is really cool and I, and I love that and and that, that that's a real buzz it's not quite the same as like playing to a bunch of people that are really excited about you playing because you're almost kind of ambient have one of you guys got a dog that's kicking off there's a there, there's there's we've got foxes in our garden so i think it's the fox right okay yeah. right brilliant yeah, sorry. No, no, don't, don't, don't apologise. It's quite nice actually because I'm in the city and I'm kind of hearing these country noises. It's quite nice. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm in the I'm in the city too, but these are these are yeah uh, feral urban foxes. They are um, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. No control over them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. Um, so, so yeah, so yeah, it's, the, the the soundtrack stuff's really really fun but it's really different and every single one's different too because like like you said you're working with a ton of people and they're very different people even the 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 last one we did zero 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 had three different directors over the series and out of the three they were totally different like one of the guys was like completely telling us exactly what to do and one of them was just like yeah do whatever you want it'll be cool and you're just going from one dynamic into a completely different one and you just have to kind of roll with it well t- tony that we'd record with he's he's the buffer he's he's done way more soundtracks than us so he he can he can speak film industry because quite often they'll say something and we're all like i've no idea what they want and tony's like oh they just want it slower they're just they just don't know how to express themselves 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah, he he's he's kind of our translator. Uh, the the film Lost in France gives some brilliant insights into the the wonderful story of Chemical Underground, the the label that released your first album proper, and it highlights the strength of the music scene in Glasgow, and the 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 powerful sense of community. Um, could you just say a little bit more about about that for you know the, the early days of the band, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, I I think that was really important, and I think signing to Chemical Underground was was a really good thing for us because they were so local and we knew Paul Paul had recorded some of our early singles Paul Savage from the Delgados and we just we were friends with Arab Strap we were friends with Bess and yeah and I mean we're still friends with all those people in, in fact Arab Strap are now on our label so it's kind of the, the whole thing just kind of keeps kind of rolling around it's, it's great and yeah I mean I, I think that's what I like most about music is is, is the friends you make and the the connections you make. I mean, obviously, I love making music too. But I kind of, I, I kind of, as I get older, I kind of value those things almost as much as the music. From in in the film, the the sort of sense of the strength of the community, um, you know, the bond that clearly was there and it's clearly still there. Sounds like it was um, Glasgow at that time. Sounded like the perfect place to be to be starting out as a creative person. Yeah, yeah, it was great, but weirdly, kind of like when I, going back to when I was talking at high school, you don't really think about it that much because you were just in it, you know. And I and I think about it now, and I think about like a one time going to a gig, and it was Delgado's, Urusai Yatsura, Spear Snare, and Biss, and I'm thinking that's nuts. I mean, and this was this was in a pub, and it wasn't even in a pub, and no one knew who they were. People did know who they were, but. There wasn't, I don't know, that it was also really quite an innocent time. No one was really trying to, no one had any kind of pretensions of, of making money or anything. It was just like people just being really kind of excited about the music and just just kind of getting on with it. Um, just moving on to your, to your uh, to Rock Action, your label, has it seen you able to work with a real I mean a real range of artists championing new music and, and releasing music from um some amazing well established bands like Swerve Driver and as you, as you mentioned Arab Strap and um my I have a particular uh, I, I, I have a particular debt of gratitude for introducing me to Envy who I oh, adore. Yes, yeah, so um, <laughs> Oh my god, they're just incredible. Um but I guess we could talk for a long time about running the label but can you just tell us a bit about how you respond to new artists when who send you their music i mean to be honest i'm i'm i listen to as many demos as i can i'm i'm bad for not replying which i really should do because i know when we were starting out and people replied to me it meant a lot to be honest that's something i i I could do better at um but yeah i mean if i'm being honest i would like to put more i'd I'd like i'd like to put more records out it's kind of it's just a little bit tough in this climate you know it used to be it used to be that and I actually spoke to it may even be in the the film with, with chemical underground that like a record that wasn't a success would sell three thousand copies and something that was a success would sell ten or twenty and now i mean if something sold three thousand copies you'd be like 
having a street party. Like it, it's kind of just the the goal the goalposts have moved so much. It's it's got really tricky, and we're we're lucky in that we don't rely on the money from the label to run the label. If, if that makes sense, we're kind of it's it's kind of just something we do, and it, it's a big part of what of Mogwai itself. But yeah. I definitely, I, w- I would like to put more records, without a doubt. It was a tough part of the film to watch that, you know, to hear the, you know, where they'd come from on such a kind of pinnacle on, you know, riding the crest of a wave and stuff and now comparing it, contrasting how they have to work these days. It's hard, isn't it? It's like, it is, like you said, a, a, a very tough climate. It is, yeah. I, I remember that bit in the film. I think Stuart's talking about... Um, he can't remember the last time he put a band on a plane. He's talking about sending the bands all over the world, and I mean it is tough, and 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 it's no one's immune from that. And I, I think it's kind of affecting the music industry too, because I think that a lot of labels are seeking out bands that don't need any money, and that kind of excludes so many people because you know most people don't have money to travel the world playing music off their own back you know i know we didn't you know now we're not i'm not from a i'm not from a um any kind of deprived background but i certainly wouldn't have had the 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 kind of means to do anything like that when we had a really good conversation with joe thompson from may colossus a while back and he was, you know, he, in terms of the label that he's recently started this year during lockdown, he's taken it back to a really, really small scale. So he was kind of doing mostly, again, mostly with people that he knows, friends, bands, and sometimes just doing like 50 cassettes or 100 vinyls or, you know, kind of very, very small scale, but still working very much around stuff that he really wanted to, to kind of hear himself and to own himself, and it was, you know, in that in that terms, it was it was a lovely story. I mean, to be honest, that's quite inspiring, and and maybe that's something that we should kind of be kind of looking towards, like putting out music, maybe at some of it at a level that is just appropriate. You know, like not everything's going to go in the charts. You know, I mean, most of the music I buy is not music that's going to go anywhere near, near the charts. So, yeah, no, that's that's inspiring to hear. He he was inspiring to talk to all around, actually, Joe. Have you read his book, Stuart? What is this, what is this book? It's part of the Sleeve Notes series. Um, so he's just done one about his life in music. It's absolutely fantastic. No, I don't know if not. Yeah, no, I, I mean I really love the the record. Their their new record's great. No, I'll check it out. What, do you know the name of it? What's the name of the book? It's just called Sleep. Well, the series is called Sleeve Notes, and it's just Joe Thompson. Yeah, it, you would love it. You'd really love it. It's a yeah. great read. Yeah, I'm kind of upset. I actually got um, I got reading glasses for the first time a couple of months ago, and it's kind of changed my life. I've been reading so much more. Than, uh, than I have. I've read, I've read some absolutely amazing books. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. It's a good episode of the podcast as well. Yeah, of, uh, Songs from Padded Envelope. Yeah, I'll get, I'll, I'll, I'll get involved. <laughs> um, well, speaking <laughs> of getting involved, nice segue into collaboration with uh, other artists because you've collaborated with some amazing artists across your records. And we're just kind of wondering how does working with, with someone like Griff Rees or, or Rocky Erickson impact on the music you're making um i mean 
both were just kind of amazing in 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 different ways. Weirdly though, I mean, they weren't that collaborative. Both of them came and sang on finished songs. I would, I kind of, I would have loved to be in a situation with Rocky where we kind of all go in a room and he came up with something. And we just kind of bounced it off him, but. Even even just just being in the studio with him, he was just such a sweet guy. Obviously, the I'm a huge fan, so just geeking out that I'm hanging out with Rocky Erickson was amazing. Um, Griff, Griff's just one of the. I mean, earlier on when I was talking about people in music that we meet, I just I've never met anyone like Griff. Griff is a really genuinely one off kind of maverick guy who's also the I, I, I can't think of a nicer person either just a lovely lovely man and um yeah it was great I, and actually w- watching him do vocals because i remember him recording it really really well and he was so focused and he could remember like he must have sang it i'm taking a guess four or five times and he could remember every line that he sang well so when when it was being comped he was like um you know, first take for that line, second take for that line, just like really, really taking it, taking it seriously. And, and yeah, he's amazing. And he's came and sang. He's, he's, he, he also, going back to people not caring about money or anything, I remember he came on tour with us and we couldn't even believe he was supporting us. He was doing a solo, solo set and he didn't even bring any merch. We were like, and he, and he was like, oh, I forgot. It was like, when it's Welsh first, oh, I forgot. You're like, you forgot to bring to me. He just didn't give it. He couldn't care less. He was just out. He just wanted to play music. He just wanted to come and hang out with us in the bus and whatever, drink wine and watch horror films, whatever we do. You know, just, it was so, it's so great. So, yeah, I just, as much as it's cool to have had Griff on a record, it's even cooler to for him to be one of my friends, you know, and that probably wouldn't have happened if he hadn't came and, played on a record i probably wouldn't have got, got to know him so well so yeah it's, it's it's awesome that's brilliant is there is there anyone on your wish list anyone that you really really desire desire to have on a mogwai record i mean there's tons there's absolutely tons i mean i would like i would really love Polly harvey or 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 eggy or i mean there's and i mean there's there's we we actually got asked to collaborate with lou reed once and we didn't do it and it's the it's probably my only actual musical regret and i remember my neighbor I've, I, I, I've moved house he's not my neighbor anymore he's still my friend and he's a huge music fan he was actually angry with me he was like why did you not do that that's mental and i was like i think i think we had some other plan and we were like oh and then you you, you think oh we can do that another time but obviously he's, he's an old guy and he's not around anymore and yeah yeah that was pretty dumb so yeah, no, there's 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 a ton of people. I mean, I would love to do something with Boards of Canada. You know, they're one of my favorite bands, and oh, I can see that working brilliantly. That that's a collaboration that should definitely happen. It probably won't though. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, we we interviewed Dave Guttridge for the show, who's a um, a photographer working at the John Peel Archive, and Peel comes up a lot on the podcast. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it would be remiss to not ask you to share a little bit about his support for Mogwai. I mean, it, it was huge. I mean, probably 
if John John hadn't given us a session, we probably would have not been able to afford to get down to London to play some of the gigs that um, we got known through for, like that we first got written about at. Um, I remember as well, um, he was up doing a, de- a documentary on Chemical Underground and the hotel he was staying was five minutes from my parents. And they must have mentioned it to him, but it was it was before I'd really met him. I didn't really know him. I'd maybe sent him a record with a little note or whatever. And he phoned my parents. I still lived with my parents. He phoned my parents and like invited me down for dinner. And, and he was just always really, 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 really kind and very honest. I, I always I remember I remember him DJing at Chemical Underground's birthday, and he was playing Gladys Knight and the Pips, and I didn't know what it was, and him just looking at me with absolute horror. That I'd, <laughs> I'd never heard Gladys, <laughs> but no, he he was he he was amazing, and his his support was invaluable, and just and I actually one of the last conversations I had with him, he, he said that um, he never thought anyone was really going to like Mogwai. He said that um, he thought we'd be just be one of these bands that he he would always he would always play our records, but no one would ever get. It. <laughs> <laughs> and he was we'd obviously went on to do to do to to do quite well and, and he was really happy about it but he was laughing at how surprised he was that this had ever ever taken place we um we've just got a, a couple of a couple more questions and then uh, and then we'll let you go Stuart. um um people often describe how songs become attached to a, a specific time and place um how does that sit with you as a songwriter I mean, a hundred percent right. I mean, kind of some of our songs, the first note will start, and I'll remember where what. Maybe not even when the song was written, but so, everything has has a connection. I think that there's something so solid between music and nostalgia and memory, and I, I think that's one of the reasons people kind of really gravitate towards music that they listened to when they were when they were young because you're you're experiencing new things so the music that you were into at that point has a massive connection to you that's kind of unbreakable so and i think our, our music is kind of generally quite nostalgic sounding anyway so i definitely think that's that's a huge thing and i feel it myself i, I absolutely feel it when we play old old songs i can remember just everything about about the time that, that they were read or written. That's a beautiful thing. Um, one one last question for you, Stuart. When when John Doran was interviewing you, he referenced someone having described you as a blueprint for how an independent group should be. And it's obviously a huge compliment to the way that you've carried yourselves as a band. Can you see why people would hold you in such high esteem? Um, I, I think that that's a, that's a massive compliment. Um, and and I, I would hope that would be the case. I, 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 that's what we were certainly would, would would try to. I mean, we we put our own records. Um, we have our own publishing. We um, we do as much ourselves as we can. Um, we do employ some people at our label, not tons and tons of people, but a few people who work really really hard and. Yeah, I'm 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 proud of the independence we've 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 achieved, and I think we've hopefully managed to do it without it seeming like any kind of downsizing. It's more us lifting up to kind of 
a level rather than us just kind of settling on some kind of lesser lesser way of getting by. But I mean, there's been so much, so many people that have inspired us over the years. I mean, from chemical chemical underground um, to labels labels like um, Discord, you know, just I mean. I mean, I could I could go on. Labels have changed my life is another another conversation entirely. But just just people doing inspiring things and kind of keeping it at a very kind of non corporate level. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely something to to, to aim towards. Um, yeah, I don't I, I don't know if we've got it all right, but we're definitely we're trying our best. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and soldiering through the technical issues we've had this, this evening That's with no uh, the, the Wi-Fi signal farting in our faces as we've gone through. <laughs> but, um, yeah, th- thanks thanks so much. It's a real treat to talk to you. Can we just finish off, please, with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now? Okay, this is the home studio demo of what will be our next single, Richie Sacramento. Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. All right, chaps. All right, cheers, guys. See you later.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. 